This is exactly right. And I, I worried that something was broken in me or missing in me. That changed for me when I discovered the science that said that all people's brains change when they become a parent, not only the, the one in five people who have postpartum mood and anxiety disorders, but everyone. And a key piece of that is this period of really intense hyper-responsiveness in the early postpartum period. There are these changes in the brain that drive us to pay attention to our babies. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Mother Brain with Chelsea Conaboy. Chelsea is a journalist focused largely on personal and public health. She started writing at the small but mighty Concord Monitor in New Hampshire, where she discovered her love for narrative writing. She wrote about healthcare at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Boston Globe and was part of the Boston Globe staff that won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for breaking news and for coverage on the Boston Marathon bombings. For three years, Chelsea led the Features Report at the Portland Press-Herald in Maine, where she edited weekly sections on arts and entertainment, books, food, and sustainable living. Her writing has also been published by Mother Jones, Politico, and Boston Sunday Globe Magazine, National Journal, The Week, Parent Map, and WBUR. Her book, her first book, this exciting book which we're talking about today, Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood, is published by Henry Holton Company. Chelsea lives in a 1920s bungalow near the ocean in Maine. Gosh, that sounds wonderful. (laughs) Where she lives with her husband and her two young sons. Chelsea, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and for that introduction. So nice. (laughs) Congratulations on a significant contribution, a significant scientific contribution Mm. to a area that is clearly been historically misinformed for, I don't know, since the beginning of time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a a long, a long road to this point for sure. (laughs) There is so much in your book. I mean, and this is what I, I have so much respect for uh, scientific journalists because there is such, there's so much research that goes into the topic and then translating the research into digestible narrative, which is clearly that you are skilled in and and are passionate about. And to bring that to the fore, um, well, it seems like a birthing process um, of its own. (laughs) It it was. It was a tricky one, for sure. You know, this is a topic that just hasn't been written much about for, for a lay audience at all, even though we've We've had really like this half century of of research into the parental brain and now in the last two decades, especially into the human parental brain. Um, and but it just hadn't been been translated yet and really digested in a way that we could like pull pull meaning out of it and and start to understand what it means for our individual experiences of parenthood, but then also for like our broader cultural conversation of what it means mm-hmm. to be a parent. Um, you know, I took a stab at it and, and it was, it was, it was hard. And, um, yeah. but I'm, I'm happy. I'm really glad that this book gets to be part of the conversation of what this, what the science, where, where it's going to take us. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna boldly state it's going to be the foundational, volume by which the future of this field 
is built upon. Um, because wow. you brought yeah. all, you've brought all of the different biological neuroscience, uh, psychoanalysts, uh, pediatricians, like all of the different ways, uh, historical, sociopolitical ways that motherhood, mother brain, um, mother instinct has, has been seen and it's all together in one place, I, I think for the first time. And uh, you would know mm. most from your research. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's a, that's a big statement. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm flattered, but I also, I, I do think it does, this book does something that, that hasn't been done before in, in, um, in bringing those things together specifically with the neuroscience. And, um, you know, it started for me, I, I wrote this, uh, magazine article back in 2018 for the Boston Globe that was really about me trying to figure out my own maternal brain and just mm -hmm. like, like answer the question of like, what's happening and, and why, why didn't I know about it sooner? And then when I started that, that piece got a really huge, um, reaction from readers. And I had already been thinking about writing a book and, and then, um, I realized, well, you know, it's, I need to write a book that people really want this information and there's an audience for it. And I, as I started to research, I felt like the topic just got bigger and bigger. Yeah. It wasn't just the maternal brain, but all parents' brains. And, and it wasn't just the science story of the science, but it was the story of the cultural context and, and this, you know, the history of this idea of maternal instinct and what, what that, how we got that, I got that notion and how mm -hmm. it, um, why it's wrong and, and yeah. what the science has to say instead. So it really, it really grew, um, and took me on kind of a journey with mm -hmm. it, you know, as, to explore these different aspects. Well, let's, let's jump straight into yeah. this notion of maternal instinct and you saying like, Hey, everyone, it's not what we've been told to believe. Um, there are reasons we have been told to believe this, and um, there are other truths about it, but it's not what you think. So right. what is that? Yeah. So, you know, this whole book is about how we're changed by parenthood, how there are, are these deep, profound, long-lasting neurobiological changes that happen in this transition to parenthood. And so that is is true, you know, but what we, what I, what I take issue with is this idea of maternal instinct as something that is this capacity for caregiving that is innate and automatic and distinctly female. And the idea that that, that definition of, of maternal instinct, a fixed pattern of behavior is based in science. And really none of those things are true. This, mm. um, this is an idea that was really written into scientific theory in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, by men who held on to moral ideas of motherhood uh, based in based in religion of what a uh, a belief of of what a woman is and what a what a mother is and um, you know uh, as uh, in the early days of evolutionary theory and then as as scientists started looking at at instinctual behaviors in humans, um, they, they basically wrote those beliefs into, into this, the theory. And, and, and even from the earliest days, there were feminists who were saying, you've got it wrong here. Mm -hmm. We see, we see what you're trying to do. You're trying to make it look easy for us and it's mm -hmm. not easy. And this is, um, there was one early psychologist, uh, Leda Hollingsworth in 1916, yeah. she wrote that, that, um, that scientists were trying to use the same tools that compel soldiers to go to war to persuade women to have more babies. And she called it, she called maternal instinct a cheap device. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. and I would read her words today, you know, a century later and they really, Still resonate. <laughs> she was a brilliant. Uh, not that a lot of people know about her. She was a brilliant um, pioneer, and many of her, her thoughts and her thinking was so far ahead of its time. Yeah, especially around gifted children, which I know exactly. You've done a yeah, lot of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's how I yeah. uh, became aware of her work. Um, yeah. So this whole 
so so if I'm summarizing and then you can edit and correct, it's like, okay, women are are basically have this natural maternal instinct. Um, a primary function is to reproduce and to have children, and automatically all of the mothering instinct kicks in. Uh, you're made for this, and it's just kind of the way it is. It's just like the switch goes on, and you have this mother instinct, and um, easy peasy, piece of cake. Go do your job and uh, stay home and do it so us men can go out there and do the other things that, we're so, we're, that we do. Yes. I think that's right. And, and, you know, even as, as researchers, as scientists stopped using the idea that that it kind of fell out of favor, this idea that human behavior is largely controlled by instincts in the middle part of the 20th century, you know, scientists kind of stopped using that framework to, to such a degree, the maternal instinct was carried forward in how we talk about parenthood, partly because of the work of Conrad Lorenz and John Bowlby's. Conrad Lorenz is known for, for uh, you know, describing the imprinting of, of birds. You know, when birds mm-hmm. are, are born, they, they like relate to the first moving object that they see. And, and he really extrapolated that idea um, later onto, onto human mothers and babies and made it seem like it was this lock and key kind of thing, this like, uh, cause and cause and effect, like it automatic, um, of a fixed pattern of behavior. And mm-hmm. John Bowlby, who is one of, you know, the creators of attachment theory, um, really seized on Conrad Lorenz's work. And, and that was foundational to his description of, of attachment. And it, so it just, it, it, it like evolved over time, but it stayed, very much a part of our cultural conversation mm-hmm. of what it means to be a mother, this idea that it is automatic and innate and and we just sort of need a baby to make it happen. And and yeah. it's just the the problem I have with it is that it's just and the science, this is what the science is showing is it's just much more complicated than that. And mm-hmm. we are much more complicated as as parents. And it's not just about um, about mothers, but it's it's this process that evolves in in us that that um, is really a new a major stage of development of in our lives, and um, yeah. we need to see it as such. Mm-hmm. It's much more multifaceted, and I, I think that for people listening, um, and a lot of mothers listening to this show. I I can see how there'd be a little confusion where it's like, well, no, 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 I, I have this mother instinct. Like this has changed me. Like I am not the same person I was before I had children or care t- we'll talk about, or caretake for children. It's not just you don't, it's not just gestational children. Mm-hmm. Um and so 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 what are you saying? Like I have this instinct, but as as you tell the story and then we think about the natural, so this kind of like PR, it, it basically is like PR and marketing about the natural mother instinct and how it just happens. And then you write about all of the physical changes, the the hormonal changes, the neurochemical changes um, that occur. And with the worry and the preoccupation that is so much for a variety of reasons a part of this process and it makes me wonder how much of the distress and you know you share yours your worry and your preoccupation what percentage it for people is it because we're not told what this really is right like we're not told so so you feel off as one should given this process um and then you feel there's something wrong with you for feeling off, which actually creates depression and anxiety. It actually <laughs> right. like causes the problem or at least yeah. makes it worse. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you're, you, you're right on. I, that's like my whole motivation for writing this book really was that I, I, you know, I was a health reporter when I, that was my background. And, and so when I was pregnant with my first son, I, I knew that it was going to be hard when I had had my baby, but I, I just did not anticipate the kind of change in my internal life that I experienced. And, and I did anticipate like that I would have these biological changes that would sort of carry me through those hard first months. And then what happened instead was that I 
my son was born on the small side. He was under six pounds. And I just was overwhelmed with worry for his well-being and um, about whether he was growing and whether I was feeding him well enough and and my, my, my own ability to take care of him. And then I was also worried about the worry. You know, yeah. I felt like I had expected something to feel you know, warmth and, and certainty in this like role that I had so anticipated. And then, um, and then I felt all of this doubt and I, I worried that something was broken in me or missing in me. And, and that changed for me when I discovered the science that like, that, that said that, you know, all parents' brains change <laughs> in, you know, when they, all people's brains change when they become a parent, not only the, the one in five people who have postpartum mood and anxiety disorders, but everyone. And a key piece of that is this period of really intense hyper-responsiveness in mm-hmm. the early postpartum period. There are these changes in the brain that drive us to pay attention to our babies and to um, go back to them again and again to try to read and meet their needs, even when we don't have like the practical skills to, to do those things yet. And and that that is that that hyper responsiveness or hyper vigilance, that worry that I was feeling was actually you know, something I needed to like be careful of and address, but it also was productive. It was part of helping me to adapt to this new role, to be the parent that my baby needed me to be. And that mm-hmm. changed everything for me because I, it was just a complete change of a uh, framework, you know, of, 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 um, I, I just, it, it was, um, it just turned it into the kind of distress that I could grow from rather than feel overwhelmed by. And, um, I do think, I think your point to your point, it it is exactly right. I mean, if, if we don't give people this information about what's happening to their brain and, and, um, then it's really easy for them to, to, um, I just see it as a problem rather right. than part of the process. Part of the process. So if your book was given to you at the beginning and it was in the list of books to read uh, as you're preparing, how do you think that would have changed your experience? I hope that it would have... <sighs> helped me to just um, relax into the process a little bit more, you Mm -hmm. know, to, to like have some context when I felt those worries to know that it was part of this transition. Right. I also hope that I would have, especially if I had read it, you know, while I was pregnant, taken a little bit of a clearer stock of like my own, resources, both like internally, my own like, um, potential needs, you know, to support my own mental health. And also like socially, I, um, I, I think I could have done a better job, like building up supports around me, Mm -hmm. um, during that time, uh, to get through because you, (laughs) the thing that's hard is, you know, they say like, you can't, you can't prepare for new parenthood until you're in it. And to some degree, that's true, but you really can't prepare for it if you don't know anything about this major neurobiological change that that's gonna that's gonna like kind of alter your mental state, right? Like that's something totally. that is different than what we've what you've maybe dealt with before, and um, and I don't know. I I hope that that this information would have helped me to make some different choices. I often draw the parallel to to adolescence with this. So yeah, yeah. so you know, there's there's interesting research that kind of compares the degree of change that happens in the postpartum period to adolescence, but also just the fact that um, adolescence is a period of time where we know there's significant. Um, hormonal and functional and structural changes to the brain that are fundamentally adaptive, but that also open us up to really 
important vulnerabilities for for mental illness, just like during the postpartum period. And the research on the teenage brain is a little bit farther ahead than the parental brain. And and, um, we've used the research on the teenage brain to do things like to change public health messaging around substance use and other risky behaviors. We've used it to shift school start times for high schoolers. We've used it in some schools to change disciplinary practices. We've taken the information to parents and said, here, this will help you to understand what your child is going through. And we've also taken it into schools themselves and given it to teenagers and said, this will help you understand your own mental health. And mm-hmm. I think that's been really profound. And And I think we could have a similar conversation with parents about what's going on with them and use use this to change clinical practices and social policies, but also just to like empower parents to know what's happening to them. Totally. Totally. Um, Couldn't agree with you more. And you talk about your own experience, childhood experiences um, with anxiety, where you um, seem to do amazing self-exposure therapy. Um, And and just knowing that during this process, when the natural changes occur, for people who have had a temperament, uh, more of an anxious temperament, or have dealt with anxiety disorders or even depression, just to know that those feelings, there's a, a high likelihood that those feelings come up again with such a major emotional, neurobiological, psychological, right, um, change and and also for those who don't have any prior experience of this mm-hmm. it can still happen and right. and like you said just having this level of awareness is this is yes this is amazing this is a you know this miracle of life thing that there all that is still part of the process right but it's like it's there's so much more to this process that yeah. that um for lots of different reasons, you write how it's kept behind closed doors. And again, the marketing and the PR to keep everyone sort of in their place. And, and this is changing. Um, I also, you, you, you talked about beyond, you're starting to allude to beyond women and everyone changes, right? So the research is predominantly on white cisgender women historically and we're just starting to learn about the changes of men of transgendered individuals of gay couples of um adoptive parents of of grandparents and kin that are primary caretakers Mm -hmm. like everyone changes and to your point in the book like all of these people are needed to raise a healthy person and for us Mm -hmm. to have a healthy society Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know I said a lot there. I don't know where you want to dive in there. I, I was on a, yeah. on a roll there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the we, we it is it is really kind of um, absurd almost how little research we have so far on fathers and other parents. I say in the book that you know sometimes when I and I was like looking closely at this research, I just would like stop myself and 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 re- feel like this is so outdated like it in the sense that like it doesn't it doesn't match the the world and the families that I I see around me because it's so it is um so focused on on um different sex couples and and on married couples and 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 like that nuclear unit and mm-hmm. the reality is is much broader than that and more diverse. Um, but the, but it, that is starting to change to some degree. I mean, we have, I, I know there's a lot of research in fathers that's kind of, um, in the pipeline right now. And, and, um, it's really important and, um, you know, so what we have so far kind of holds to very similar themes of what we're mm-hmm. seeing in mothers, which is, the the parental brain is is shaped by two things really it's hormones and experience and um you know whether you're a gestational parent or a non-gestational parent the mechanisms are going to be a little bit different but the outcomes seem to be quite similar and um you know if fathers experience hormonal changes as they approach men, men experience hormonal changes as they, as they approach fatherhood, um, they can experience shifts in testosterone and prolactin and vasopressin and, and, and also, um, 
you know, they have spikes in oxytocin, which, you know, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about in its role yeah. in bonding as they interact with their kids. And, and then it's thought that just like with mothers, those changes kind of prime the brain for them to be ready to be exposed to their babies who are these really incredibly powerful stimuli. And mm-hmm. then as you engage with them over time, that changes the brain. And there was just a study that came out um, this fall since, since Mother Brain was published That's I think is going to end up being a very significant study moving forward that um, looks at the brains of fathers either before their their partners were pregnant or during their pregnancy, and then looks at them again in the postpartum period. Um, and they found structural changes in the brain, particularly hmm. in cortical regions that are part of the default mode network, which is, you know, involved with um, mentalizing how, how mm-hmm. we read and respond to other people's social cues and also in um, the visual network. But they're, they're, um, the, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of on track with this studies that have also found structural changes in mothers related to, to social cognition. And, um, I, I think we're gonna, we only have part of the story now, but mm-hmm. it's coming. And I think, um, mm-hmm. the questions that are sort of before us are really exciting. So I have a nuanced question about what you said, and I was thinking because you said talked about there's the there's the process the birthing process, and then there is the experience of parenting and parenthood. So I, what I'm curious about is the mother who gives birth, but then the child for whatever reason does not live with the mother, or the mother is not the caretaker, mm-hmm. or the father who is not present in a child's life early on are there in each of those situations still temporary changes or are there lasting changes because a lot you write a lot about the experience of mm-hmm. parenthood as a primary ch- I, I feel like a primary contributor to the change right yes we don't have the answer to that question honestly there's huh. a there's a lot that we don't know in terms of um how how these changes will unfold along what timeline and like what what's what's the dose of parenting experience that you yeah. would need in order for right. these to really take effect but there is there is this um i guess general sense truth even that experience matters and I, I think back to the the studies that were done in rodents in the 1960s by someone who's considered like the grandfather of the field, Jay Rosenblatt, and he he studied um, the behavior of mother rats who, um, you know, birthed their children, their their pups rather, and and then had the babies removed from from their care and the mothers like engaged in maternal behaviors when the pups were just born, but then, you know, stopped when the pups were removed and, and couldn't, couldn't initiate them again quickly when the pups were like returned to them weeks later. So it was, it was this idea that it's not just like the hormonal initiation that's important, but also the exposure, what he called like the maintenance phase that Mm -hmm. it needs to like keep going in them and grow in them. And, Mm. um, and so, but we really don't have that level of detail yet. And in humans, we do, we do have some research that shows like, um, this is like a slightly different point, but uh, there's there was a study that looked at the brains of of mothers who gave birth by C-section or by vaginal birth, and in the uh, early postpartum period, their their brains had a slightly different pattern of activity between those two groups. But when they were looked at, when they did a looked at their brains again. Um, I think it was at, at three months postpartum, those, dis- those changes had, those differences had disappeared. So, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the, one of the things that uh, the kind of central tenets of the parental brain is it is 
really highly plastic, that it is one of the most changeable times of mm -hmm. our lives. And, um, and that can unfold differently for, you know, from person to person. Mm -hmm. You mentioned oxytocin and, uh, that's a word we hear, uh, we hear a lot in the neuroscience world and in the love and bonding world. And so I have a three part question, I think mm -hmm. for you on this. Tell us what oxytocin is, what people have historically thought about oxytocin, and what the science actually reveals, right, from what people ha have historically thought, or the myth. Yeah, this is a tricky question. Um, so oxytocin is is really important hormone that is involved in um in, in labor and lactation and, um, and that, uh, and, and, and in social interaction, you know, we get, we get spikes of oxytocin as we're interacting with our kids and our loved ones. And, and, um, <clears throat> and, uh, it's often thought of as, as of the love hormone. Um, but I, um, I cite some researchers in the book who who say it's actually an allostatic hormone, which means like a a regulatory hormone that helps us to um, understand how to meet our needs over time. Mm -hmm. I guess that might be the simplest way to describe it. And one of those needs is is you know social interaction. We we get our needs met by our connections with other people. I um in this book. Um, I think one of my goals was to try to challenge the simple narratives that we have yeah. around parenthood and mm -hmm. women, you know, mothers, pregnant people hear a lot about oxytocin when, when they're pregnant and, and its role in, in childbirth. And then that sort of golden hour story of, um, you know, your baby will be born and you will latch on, you know, it will latch on, you will nurse them for the first time and you will be flooded with oxytocin and your baby will be flooded with oxytocin and the bond will be sealed forever. And, um, sounds so simple and clean. It does. And yeah. natural. Yeah. And, natural. Right. Yeah. And, um, it just doesn't happen that way for a lot of people, even if everything, goes well. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way or it doesn't feel that way. And, and, and then there are, you know, there's, and then, then you talk about people who have C-sections or just complicated births and then they have trouble breastfeeding. And, and, um, I guess my main point is really that bonding is much more complicated, that oxytocin is very important, but it is one really important com component of a much bigger system. And, um, and I, one of my favorite quotes in the books is, is, is by Darby Saxby, who's the director of the, uh, center for the changing family. Um, and she talks about how one of her mentors said that, that parenting is so important to the evolution of our species that there are going to be redundancies, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that, right. that um, it's not like if you don't get that one perfect moment after birth, then your, your bond is, is irreparable or broken at all. There will be other opportunities to start that process. And in fact, there are millions of opportunities over the course yes. of your child's life yes. to make that happen. And um, I just, it, we have this sense that oxytocin is like this pixie dust that, that, um, that, that just, you know, seals the deal. And, I, and not only, do I, th I, I, it is important, but not only is it not quite so simple, but there's also this other component, which is that like parent parenting involves thinking, you know, like mm -hmm. we, one of the things that our brains are driving us to do in those first days is to pay attention to our kid. And, and like, it's that attention ultimately that, that connects us to them and that helps us to know them better. Yeah. Yeah. And, 
I don't know. That's just something. Yeah. Different. Well, and I have that. I have this this quote from you that I was just gearing up to read, and yeah. you just let us right into it. And it and it's and it's this: the parental brain makes love for our children possible, and that love can be big and generous and lifelong, but it unfolds with time. And a baby cannot wait to be cared for. So at the very start, the parental brain does not rely entirely on love, or at least not the version of it we may know. Its first mission is to capture and to keep a parent's attention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, right? and I love talking about this because attention can feel all sorts of ways. Like we think about love as this, this, this warmth, this, you know thing. I know it's hard to put into words, right? But this like overwhelming connection to someone and, and, and magic, right? It's, it's romance and, and attention can feel like that. Some people do, you know, have that experience in those first moments with their babies. Attention can also feel like worry. Attention right. can right. feel like right. focus, like obsessiveness. And, um, and I, I think that's just an important thing because I, I um there are lots of different ways that it can feel and and be a, a healthy relationship that will grow into love for your mm -hmm. child and again going back to the purpose of this book and and you're really clear like hey everyone this is not a parenting book this is not going to tell you what to do this is going to give you information to help guide you on this experience and i think that's what you this piece is another really important piece to this work and your mission in this work is this can feel confusing this can feel hard this can feel yucky this can feel the opposite of what you expected to feel because of the messages that we're told or even the stories that are passed down to us from our kin and elders which might be true or might be revisionist of how people remember things and all of that it, it, it's everything and all of it and to try to be open to this is really an adventure and an ex mm. a life-changing experience mm. that has so many different thoughts, feelings, um, joys, and challenges. And mm. all of it is normal. <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. And, and, and struggle is normal in, in right. that too. And, and I think there's, you know, an important piece of this is that it's, it, um, you know, if it's, if that struggle is too much to, you know, the, to get help, right. That's, that's, um, an important message here. I, I did actually worry in writing this that like, am I going to make it sound like, well, it's all, all of this is normal and so, um, you know, I don't know what would people say, like, so people who talk about postpartum depression or anxiety are, are overblowing some, you know, somehow it's like going to undermine the, the steps we've made in reducing stigma around postpartum mm -hmm. mood and anxiety disorders. And ultimately I came to realize like, oh no, it's, oh, you know, hopefully it'll be the opposite of that to say like, right. struggle is, is normal. It every we all we all need support in this time in our lives and it's totally okay to need more support and and in fact that that's not a sign of that you're broken and and it's just a sign that maybe you don't have the right supports in place or you know that that you need we just need to put some new ones there and and you can like come back to a healthy place. It's not this, mm -hmm. this maternal instinct is missing in you and that's why you're sick. And so you're a bad mom. It's just like a, a it's just like a, um, a, 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 it's a spectrum. Yes. It's a continuum. Where they, yes. It is a continuum. And, um, I love this research. There's some really important research being done on um, at out of Tufts on like the the nature of postpartum depression and a certain subset of women. But the the lead researcher said like we even with like really um, serious cases of postpartum depression, there's some indications now that it's like 
you just need to like move that person back into like a healthy state. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it, um, and, and that there, there are some medications under development to do that. We're, we're about mental health and a lot of people suffer from, as you point out, various degrees of postpartum depression and anxiety. And it's not a black and white thing. Like this right. checklist, you have it. Oh no, you don't have it. You're fine. And you're walking away. Like, I don't feel fine. Right. right? So right. yeah, this is completely relevant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's just that it's a, it's a continuum and, and it isn't a black and white thing. As you say, it isn't like, like I write in the book, like I thought it would be sort of like the flu, like you have it or you don't. And in reality, it is this really wide spectrum of experiences and, and, and psychological distress is an inherent part of it, which also means that needing support in that is an entirely normal thing. Mm-hmm, totally. And you talk about how all of this research and putting it together in your book, it, like other areas, ideally this leads to policy changes for the health of families, the health of health of parents, of mothers, of fathers in all in all of their different forms in order to raise healthy kids and have a healthy society. Um, I, I was fortunate enough last month to interview the woman in California who was responsible for the change in mm-hmm. um, school time, school start times. So it, it totally resonates with how that research did create mm-hmm. policy change. You talk about how the research on mothering and parenting and the multitude of changes, what we now know about the process of what goes into having a child, raising a child. And there are several parts of our societal makeup which do not support the maximum health of all the people involved in this. And you have some recommendations. What, what, are, what should we be thinking about? How to use this science to change policy to create health? First off, without a doubt, is is paid leave. I mean, if we are going to to accept this idea that new parenthood is a major stage of development in which and, and that and that time, uh, you know, exposure to a baby is a really important piece of of this healthy transition, then parents need time with their babies, mm-hmm. and they need time with their babies with some sense of financial security or stability. Um, and and the United States is one of six countries in the world that doesn't have paid maternity leave. And hmm. um, that's a really, um, it's a distinctly American shame, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 um, and so that, that's, you know, without a doubt, that's, that's where I would start. Um, I think there's other things too. I mean, I, um, I, I, uh, if you want to think about, about caregiving as really like a cognitive enhancement, right? Like not Mm -hmm. just a soft skill, but something that has really been earned over time. Um, then we need to talk also about how we pay our people who, people who do this work, um, Mm -hmm. and, and see them, you know, daycare providers and, and nannies and early childhood educators as, as people who are specialized, um, for this work, they're specialized baby tenders and, and, Mm -hmm. um, and, and really value that. Um, and, I think also we need to look at our clinical care. Um, in the United States, we have one standard six-week postpartum appointment, and apart from that, most mothers get nothing. And mm-hmm. um, that's not the standard in many of our peer countries, and it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, looking a little further upstream, I think we need to be doing more. Um, you know, to talk to parents about, about their brains, to expect, expectant parents about their brains, but also specifically screening 
expectant parents for, for risk factors. You know, we do, we have a standard screening tool for that six week appointment to see if someone's in crisis, but mm-hmm. we know some of the the things that can um, increase a person's risk for developing postpartum depression and anxiety. And we don't mm-hmm. have any standardized tool for talking with them about those factors or um, helping to direct them into um, support groups or psychotherapy that has been proven to help. Excellent recommendations. <laughs> um, they seem big. <laughs> they say, yeah, there's a lot to do. It is always <laughs> astonishing to hear how our country, which allegedly leads many things, is so far behind in other and other things, like you yeah. you point out, um, I believe in the United States, it's state by state. It's not federal. So depending on where you live, there is are some paid leave programs, um, right. but, it, but it really yeah. varies. It really varies. And if they are, if they do exist, they're quite small uh, right. for the most part. I think California is different, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, it should be, it should be a standardized thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. All right, everyone, you hear that? We have work to do. Yes. Um, and grateful to you, Chelsea, for we have um, we have literature uh, <laughs> gathered and explained to support the scientific need, um, which it always helps, right? When we talk in narrative and in prose to people, it's it can be compelling but it doesn't always stick. And when you can have that narrative that is backed by scientific data, Mm. that is what makes change and grateful for your work. Thank you. Yeah. It's time for the parent footprint moment question. Okay, here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. I I write about a lot of these moments in the book, but I actually thought I would talk about one that happened recently. Um, I have two very different kids, and I spend a lot of time um, questioning myself and and whether I'm raising them right and mm-hmm. and the ways I'm trying to do things differently than I was raised is it is it right and also you know we get so much messaging about in society about how there's a right way to do things and so I I just I feel like I I you know so many of us I think struggle with a lot of doubt on our mm-hmm. in ourselves and I had an, a moment recently where I. Um, I had to, I, I wanted to talk with my son about that, the kind of standard conversation of like body safety and autonomy and what's a, what's safe and, and, um, and, uh, you know, that he can talk to us if he has any concerns about anything. Mm-hmm. And so it's not never like a fun conversation to have. No. I was <laughs> nervous about it, but we, you know, just like got to get it out there and early and often. And, um, so I, I gave him my spiel and he asked, asked a couple questions and then he paused for maybe like 20 seconds. And I thought, okay, well, we're done with that. We'll just move on (laughs) to the next topic. And then he said, mama, you're one of the most important people in my life. And he's seven. And I just thought, oh, like there it is. (laughs) Like, Like that, that's it. And I just... I, I felt like if we can have a sort of uncomfortable conversation and that's his reaction to it, then I, I'm wow. I'm doing something right, you know. You and, are. and it was a real moment of um, I with all of like my doubts and judgments of myself, I like sort of sat and like let that sink in a, a little bit of like nice. Um, I can I can see that I'm on the right track here somehow. Nice, nice. Yeah. That is a really meaningful moment. And I think it exemplifies for all of us, you know, for those of us who tend to be more um, on the worry, preoccupation, perfectionistic side, which um, I stand with you in those characteristics, there's, there's so much, there's this inner voice of, of doing it right, as you said. And, and, and we have to remember, 
it's really the process is what's the most important thing. And it's often messy, but the relationship and the coming back to and the I'm sorry, or I maybe could have done it different. You know, like it's that relationship that really leads. And we have to remember that's the important thing, not always these outcomes that we're that we're yeah. accustomed to looking right. for to give ourselves right. a little star. Right. Yeah. I, I write in the book about, um, so for like the postpartum anxiety, what a researcher that I talked to had, had written that like one, one thing that you can do to cope with that is to, to look at your baby, right? Like that's where you're, you're worried mm. about your baby's safety. Well, look at your baby, like your baby's okay. Yeah. And I, and with this moment, I was sort of thinking like, well, the same can be true about ourselves, right? Like, am yeah. I, am I a good, am I like doing well, by, right by them? Am I like doing everything I want to do as a parent? And like, can also like look at ourselves and look look at the connections we have with our kids and and it, I like let myself like breathe for a moment yeah. after that happened of like oh I'm I'm doing okay so important you are you clearly yeah. are <laughs> tell everyone where they can find your book and all of your other writings yeah well they can find find the book wherever wherever they buy books um and they can find more information about it at motherbrainbook.com and you're doing some speaking and uh, you've been doing some interviewing and getting lots of great press so it must be it must be exciting it is yeah and i also have a newsletter also um, at that website motherbrainbook.com awesome Awesome. Well, thank you again for this conversation and for all of the work that went into your book that um, is going to change lives. Thank you for the chance to talk about it. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. I know you have lots of people you're thinking about who you might want to share this episode with. It's not only for people contemplating parenthood, expecting to have babies, but also for all of us who are parenting to validate the changes that we all go through when we are present, involved, and trying to do our best in this thing now called parenting and the parenting experience. It is an adventure. Thank you for your five-star reviews, for being a part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become. And ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.